Welcome to Design for Joy, the radio ministry of Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California, celebrating the fact that God's people are designed for the joyful Christian life. We are glad that you could join us for today's broadcast with our pastor and teacher, Dr. Mark Mafucci. And now, let's go to the teaching for today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 is our passage today. Today we conclude our study in the book of Hebrews, and here's the key concept for this morning. Christ is the perfect promise keeper. The perfect promise keeper. The author to the Hebrews ends his letter with a passionate call that his readers would live the kind of lives that will make unbelievers stand up and take notice, that they would see that something is different because of the touch of Jesus in the lives of his followers. And he calls us and them to a new and pure lifestyle. And he tells us that that which gives us the power to accomplish this lifestyle is not guilt and it's not law, rather it is promise. His promises. There is one who keeps his promises perfectly. And he makes some specific promises to us in this passage. They're given to us in verses 5 and 8 and 6. The promises to give us help. The promises of his nearness. And the promise of his consistency. But before we zero in on those promises, let's see the context. Start by reading in verse 1 of chapter 13. You follow along as I read. He says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, the way this uh, chapter is worded, particularly in the opening few verses, you, you may get the uh, idea that the author is ending his book just by throwing out bits of disconnected advice, just kind of randomly thinking what he wants them to do and just offering up uh, kind of a laundry list of advice for their behavior, kind of like the advice your mother might give you as you walk out of the door on your way to school in the morning and you hear her back in the house in the kitchen calling out, don't forget your lunch, make sure to make, be on time for math, dinner is at six, and whatever you do, don't, by then you're out of range and you can't hear that. 
but it's a laundry list of pieces of advice, things that are popping into her head, kind of unrelated to one another, but just last words that she wants to give. It may, it may sound to you like that's what he's doing, giving advice about love and hospitality and prisoners and marriage. But in reality, all of the pieces of advice that he gives in the beginning of chapter 8 are based on the foundation of the promises that he gives us down around verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. The Old Testament quotations that he makes in the theological statement. He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, says the Lord. And he goes on, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And then in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He wants the Hebrew Christians to know those promises because he wants them to face life in confidence that Jesus is on their side. And he wants them to be satisfied in that knowledge so that they do not run away from him. And we too are called to be satisfied with the promises that Christ gives us. He says to us, first of all, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. The first element of the promise is that he will be with us. He will always be with us. He promises us his nearness. I wonder if you've ever been abandoned by someone you thought would be there to help. You've ever been forsaken by a person that you thought you could depend on. You turned around thinking that they were with you on your side all there. It's a lonely feeling when we feel abandoned. I remember as a small boy, I got lost in an, a department store in New Jersey one time. Now, it's not so much that I was abandoned there, but rather uh, I wandered away. My parents got caught up in some kind of conversation about something that they were purchasing, and I became impatient as a small boy because they, they told me that they would take me over to the toy department. And so I wandered away on my own, seeking the toy department myself. And, and I remember standing in the aisle of this, toy, of this uh, of department store, really not making it to the toy department yet, and being all alone and thinking to myself, I'm alone. I think it's the first time that I was ever alone in public before. I was a very small boy, and up until that moment in my life, it had always been in public, Mark, hold my hand. Mark, stay with us. Mark, come this way. But now there I stood all alone, and a thought came my way. What if my parents leave without me? Or worse, what if they go out for ice cream without me? <laughs> I'm all by myself here. And I did what any four-year-old boy would do in that circumstance. I burst into tears. And a store employee came down the aisle, and he saw me there crying. And he took my hand, and he brought me to the front of the store, to the little booth that had a microphone in it. And this was the intercom system for the store, where they announced the specials that were on sale from time to time. And I remember the announcement to this day, attention shoppers. We have a little lost boy. He says his name is Mark. As if I'm traveling under an assumed name. <laughs> he says his name is Mark. What's that about? In any event, 
My parents <laughs> noticed my absence, and I remember the sight of my dad coming down the aisle and, and picking me up. They hadn't abandoned me. He had no trace of ice cream on his breath. <laughs> I was not forsaken. And Jesus will not forsake you. This is one of the most strongly worded verses in all of the Greek New Testament, verse 5. The Greek sounds like this, I never, ever, never will forsake you. What I want you to hear is the passion in that statement from Almighty God. You see, God does not give you grudging assistance. When you pray in your time of need, He does not look down from heaven and say, what, you again? I already answered a prayer for you from you today. Get a grip for Pete's sakes. No, he doesn't say that. God looks down and is on your side. He wants to help, for he is your helper. Verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? An interesting note, the word that's translated helper there in its verb form is related to the, the verb to run. In other words, the helper runs to give aid. The helper is excited about giving aid. He wants to help. He stands in eager readiness to assist you. You're not bothering God when you call on him in your time of need. Psalm 121, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. Last night, God was up all night watching, up, watching over you. Tonight, he will be up all night watching over you to be your helper. And this help that he gives springs from his character. He is perfect, so his help is perfect. He is righteous, so his help, help is right. He is wise, so his help is always wise. He is timeless, so his help is always on time. Now keep those thoughts in mind and go to the next promise in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never slips back from that ability and that eagerness to help you. Theologians call this doctrine that is being taught there the doctrine of God's immutability, his unchangeableness. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says that this means that, first of all, God's life does not change. He lives eternally, both forwards and backwards. There never was a time that he was not. There never will be a time when he will not be, and he is always the same. He doesn't age. He doesn't mature. He doesn't diminish. Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's life does not change. His character or his mood does not change. There are days when you wake up, let's face it, you're a little grouchy. I hate to say it, but it's true. Some days are good days. Some days are just a little grouchy. People around us the exact same way. That person who smiled and was so nice to you yesterday, today might snap at you because we're moody. Human beings are moody. 
Now, keeping that in mind, do you remember the mood ring? Remember, we put it on and the different colors would tell what kind of mood you're in? Why don't we all wear that? That should be mandated, that we all wear a mood ring and check in with one another at the beginning of the day. Wouldn't it be great you go to the office and everybody kind of looks, whoop, threat yellow, level yellow here, you know, stay away from this guy. But we, we have those moods. But God never changes his mood. He is always perfectly working in line with his character and his good nature and his principles. And thirdly, his ways do not change. He relates to us today the exact same way he related to the people that we read about in the Scripture. He is still a God of grace and mercy as well of justice and sovereignty. He still values worship and discipleship. He still wants us to obey what he teaches us in his word because he knows that what he's telling us is the best thing for us. That's why we go to God's Word and we study the Word with the straightforward question, what is the, what is the most natural way to read what we're reading here? Not bringing our preferences to the Word of God, but rather pulling out of the Word of God the truth that it teaches. What would the very first person who read this letter in their church in the first century, what would they have understood this to be saying? Because what it meant for them, it means for us. God does not change his mind or his ways. As it applies to them, it still applies to us today. And fourthly, God's purposes do not change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't get halfway into a project and say, whoops, don't mean to be doing this. No emergency ever takes him by surprise. And keeping all of that into consideration... We, we cry out, what can man do to me? This is the kind of God who is on my side. What can man do to me? It doesn't mean that we are immune to problems. We have problems. We live in a fallen world. We deal with fallen people who do fallen things all the time. Even in this book, we've seen that some of them have been imprisoned for their faith. Still, there's struggle involved, but we don't struggle alone. And none of the struggle separates us from the love of God. Actually, that's a statement of contrast when you think about it. When the author says, what can man do to me? What he's really saying is, what I might lose at the hands of evil people is inconsequential in comparison to what I gain in Jesus Christ. These are the promises that are at the foundation at the core of the kind of living that the author is calling his readers to. Supernatural living. A life that tells you've been touched by Jesus Christ. And what is the telltale sign that you've been touched by Jesus Christ? Based on these promises, finding satisfaction in him, go back to verse 1. It is a life of love. Keep on loving each other as brothers. That's the life that we are called to. That is supernatural living. Model love, the love of Jesus Christ based on his promises. And here's how you, you show it, he says. Keep on loving each other. First, he says, through hospitality. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels 
without knowing it. The first example he gives of what this supernaturally infused life of love looks like is it looks like a life of hospitality. The expectation is what he's talking about is welcoming other believers into your home, even those believers that you may not know. Now, the question is for us, as we're a little bit separate from this historical situation, why was that so important? The reason that's so important was not because they, Christians don't want to pay hotel bills. It's not to save money. It is to save testimony. It is to save reputation. Because, you see, the inns in the day in which this is being written were basically just one step above a brothel. It was assumed that if you were staying in an inn, you were engaging in some illicit sexual activity. And so what the author is saying here is, listen, you need to work to protect the moral reputation of your brothers and sisters. This is a ministry of love. Care about the reputation of the witness of your brother and sister in the Lord, even if it means being inconvenienced and opening your home to somebody you don't know so that they can stay with you instead of in a place where it might appear that they are sinning. The principle there is care about the moral reputation of the believers around you. Show hospitality. And then he says, minister to the prisoners. Once again, the focus of his, of his comments here are the, the Christians who are in prison for their faith. Minister to those who are suffering for the faith in prison. Don't abandon them. Now, the NIV gives a very non-literal translation uh, at the end of the verse there when it says, as if you yourselves were suffering. The, the Greek word there literally says, since you yourselves are in the body. Now, what he means to say there is this. Because you are in the body, not the church body, but your physical body, because you are in the body, you are liable to be persecuted. And if persecution would come on you, you wouldn't want to be abandoned. So don't abandon those who are suffering right now in persecution. Minister to one another the ministry of love because you, you're still in the body. And it shows up in verse 4 in our marriages. He says, marriage, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Marriage is to be honored, and the specific way he has in mind is by sexual faithfulness. One man, one woman, faithful to one another for a lifetime. Now, here's the connection between the promise and that kind of life which shows Christ's love. Satisfaction in Jesus helps us be satisfied in our marriages. His presence in our lives, his nearness as a helper, helps us fight lust. And lust is the seedbed for adultery and sexual sin. It is born in lust. But as we fight against lust and we struggle for purity, we cling to the satisfying presence of Christ in the battle. Listen to the promise of Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know what that means in relationship to this 
kind of life struggle? Every time you deny that promise and are sexually impure, you obscure your ability to know God, to know of Him better and to experience His grace. But as you quench lust with the promise of Jesus that He can satisfy your longing, you grow to see God more clearly. His will and His glory, His grace. And soon we are not only pursuing righteousness, we are preferring righteousness. And that is the kind of life lived on the supernatural level that he's describing. Prefer righteousness. But he moves on. The life of love is also seen in the way we handle our money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The promise of Jesus' nearness and his help and his constancy breeds contentment. Because greed and stinginess come from insecurity. We hide things away and we hoard our, our money and our possessions because we think that these are the things that will protect us in the hard times. We're trying to carve away safety for ourselves, thinking that if we get enough, we'll be safe. But the problem is there's never enough stuff to keep you safe. Security is knowing these things can't be trusted for safety, that safety is only found in Jesus Christ. But when I depend on that, then I can be generous. I can share with others. I don't have to be greedy. Jump down to verses 7 and 9, and we'll see more what it looks like to live out this life of love he's calling us to. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. This carries over into the way this life is lived out in church. Towards spiritual elders, I can seek out and follow their good example for I have good heroes in the faith. And towards questions of doctrine, if I am not satisfied with the promises I have in Jesus, I will be tempted to run after theological novelty. And that is the curse of our age, running after theological novelty and forgetting that since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, his faith is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His teachings are the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is his church, and we follow the one who doesn't change. So the warning is, do not be lured away by theological novelty, which tickles the ears, but is empty of power. The power is found in the promise you have in Jesus Christ. And he is anxious to help you. Do you know how I know? This verse, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Isn't that a great verse? God is searching for ways 
to help you live this supernatural life. He's eager to do it, and he will do it as you look to him. Now, I'm going to ask you in closing this morning to stand to your feet, if you would. And I'm going to read to you just a few verses from the final moments of this chapter. And this, this reading is going to serve as our closing prayer this morning. But I'm going to ask you to stand and listen to it being read. And the reason for I'm doing, that, for I'm, I'm doing this is because this is the way the first recipients of this letter would have heard this letter. It would have been simply read out loud to them in the gathering together. So let us hear these final words. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And amen.